0: In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number five, the Army McCarthy hearings. June 9th,
1: 1954. One specific room in the Capitol building was busier than all the rest. In fact, spectators and television cameras packed even the corners of the room. Their focus was on the heated hearings at the front, which were being broadcast coast to coast on live TV.
0: Joseph Welch, the Army's special counsel, was in the middle of cross-examining a witness when Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy interrupted. His microphone crackled as he talked.
1: McCarthy began disparaging Fred Fisher, an associate at Welch's law firm. The tangent had nothing to do with the hearings at hand, Fisher wasn't even present. But Joe Welch knew McCarthy's dirty tactics. This one was to make him look guilty by association.
0: Welch looked McCarthy straight in the eye and exclaimed, "'Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. "'You have done enough. "'Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? "'Have you left no sense of decency?' Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar.
1: Today, we'll explore the Army McCarthy hearings. In the 1950s, Senator Joe McCarthy turned his anti-communist crusade towards the United States Army. He was convinced that certain officials had allowed communists to infiltrate the military. It would take a month of tense hearings in the Senate to get to the truth, or some version of it.
0: Coming up, we'll get to the Senate proceedings.
1: New season out on Spotify soon. After World War II, the world was at an uneasy peace. Tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States government were mounting. As the Soviets grew more powerful, America's fear of communism intensified, reaching a fever pitch known as the Red Scare.
0: Many politicians used the anti-communist hysteria to their advantage but perhaps none as boldly as Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy. The Republican senator had been in Congress since 1946, but that didn't mean he was everyone's hero. Despite being a gregarious guest at Washington cocktail parties, he was scorned by most of his fellow politicians. Many found the junior senator ill-tempered and even rageful. One poll of the Senate press corps voted him the Worst U.S. Senator.
1: When Republicans reallocated Congressional committee assignments in 1949, McCarthy was left off of every important committee. Even though he complained in writing that his lack of appointment was extremely embarrassing to me in my state, Republicans refused to budge.
0: But his embarrassment would soon end. Thanks to one particular speech in 1950, McCarthy would go from a political failure to one of the most popular senators in America.
1: On February 9th, McCarthy spoke to the Republican Women's Club in West Virginia. As the senator put it, the State Department is infested with communists. I have here in my hand a list of 205, a list of members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department.
0: The press latched on to McCarthy's sensational allegation immediately. He was catapulted into Washington's spotlight, and he quickly learned how to stay in the headlines.
1: Ironically, Senator McCarthy never produced the speech's alleged list of names. The implied threat was enough. He became an anti-communist figurehead in the Senate, where he expanded his crusade to target all kinds of subversives including communists and LGBT government workers.
0: The senator's rise to popularity was dizzying. On one hand, Americans loved him. With all the publicity, his approval ratings skyrocketed.
1: On the other, though, many Republicans were wary. McCarthy was prone to grandiose, baseless accusations and had a dangerous
0: temper to boot. Given the GOP's uneasiness, when McCarthy was re-elected to the Senate in 1952, party leaders opted to check his power. He was made chairman of the Committee on Governmental Operations, a relatively powerless committee.
1: Don't be fooled by the chairman title. It was as far as he could be from the Internal Security Subcommittee, which investigated communism within the government. McCarthy had purposely been slotted somewhere, as the Senate Majority Leader put it, where he can't do any harm.
0: But the ever-crafty McCarthy still found a way around the snub. The Committee on Governmental Operations included something called the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Using its broad mandate, McCarthy merely started his own investigative unit into alleged Communist espionage.
1: McCarthy knew he needed to stack the deck in his favor, so he appointed a young, ultra-conservative lawyer, Roy Cohn, as chief counsel of the subcommittee. With Cohn came his assistant, David Shine. The powerful senator, of course, had no way of knowing that hiring these two would be the first step towards his demise.
0: The first investigation McCarthy's subcommittee did was into the Voice of America a State Department-run radio station that broadcast in foreign countries. He alleged that there was communist influence in the program's messaging. McCarthy and Cohn fiercely interrogated VOA employees, but came up dry. Ultimately, none of their charges were corroborated.
1: But one thing was certain. Failure didn't stop McCarthy. It just pushed him towards the next target on his list— the International Information Agency's overseas library program. After the senator alleged that it stocked, quote, subversive books, the State Department caved and ordered the books removed. Some of them were even burned.
0: Needless to say, this was controversial. Even President Dwight Eisenhower was dismayed by the brawl unfolding on Capitol Hill. But although Eisenhower disliked McCarthy's tactics, he also refused to publicly condemn him. Ike wouldn't, quote, get down in the gutter with that guy. It seemed
1: like McCarthy was untouchable, and the next item on his list was his most ambitious yet.
0: In the fall of 1953, McCarthy's committee began its probe into the United States Army. After receiving reports from the press and the FBI that there were security problems at Fort Monmouth, McCarthy began digging into it.
1: The senator was oddly invigorated by the opportunity. The reports enraged him and made him more paranoid. They also meant he could zero in on his biggest target yet, the entire army.
0: Among McCarthy's more sensational accusations were that Soviet spies had stolen radar secrets and there was a Rosenberg spy ring still working at the laboratory. Julius Rosenberg, who had worked in the Fort Monmouth lab in the 1940s, had been convicted of passing atomic secrets to the Russians a couple of years earlier. He and his wife had both been put to death, and there was no evidence that their spy ring was still in operation.
1: But that didn't stop McCarthy. At the hearings, McCarthy and Roy Cohn asked the witnesses vicious and leading questions like, Do you feel that if Rosenberg was properly executed, you deserve the same fate? And what have you got against this country?
0: For all McCarthy and Cohn's antagonistic tactics, the subcommittee failed to find any chargeable offenses. And with none of the suspects still working for the Army, the best they could do was get some of the alleged subversives fired from their current jobs.
1: It was a complete failure which only heightened the senator's manic urgency. He doubled down on his army investigations.
0: His next target was right on the horizon. In December 1953, McCarthy turned his attention to Irving Paris, a dentist who had been drafted into the army in 1952 and promoted to major in 1953.
1: Shortly after his promotion, the army found out that Paris was a member of the American Labor Party, a left-wing organization considered sympathetic to communism. Paris had clearly failed to disclose this on his loyalty review card.
0: Upon realizing their mistake, the army ordered Paris' superiors to grant an honorable discharge within 90 days.
1: But Paris's imminent discharge wasn't enough for McCarthy. On January 30th, 1954, he subpoenaed Paris to appear before his subcommittee. Paris tried to refuse, and when he eventually did show up, he had no intention of being questioned. He cited the Fifth Amendment and stayed silent. McCarthy was livid.
0: Coming up, Senator McCarthy tries new tactics to break witnesses on the stand. Hi listeners, I'm so excited to introduce you to the newest Spotify original from ParCast called Blind Dating. Hosted by YouTuber Tara Michelle, Blind Dating is a fun twist on a classic setup. Strangers are introduced, conversation commences, and sparks either fly or fizzle. But here's the catch. Our hopeful singles have to choose their match before ever seeing their face. And once they've picked their potential date, we turn the cameras on. And it's either butterflies or goodbyes. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now back to the story.
0: As the Senate's 1954 Army hearings grew more tense, Senator Joe McCarthy himself only grew more aggressive. His first witness, military dentist Irving Paris, had invoked the Fifth Amendment, which enraged the senator. McCarthy demanded the Army court martial Paris and try him in military court for conduct unbecoming an officer. However, with no evidence of wrongdoing by Paris, the Army instead hastened his honorable discharge, and as a civilian, he could no longer be court-martialed.
1: An alleged communist receiving an honorable discharge? Joe McCarthy wouldn't stand for it. Soon, who promoted Paris became the rallying cry of both the senator and his conservative base. While they spun it to America as a question of ethics, there was actually a simple reason for the promotion. As a dentist, Paris had been automatically promoted due to the Dr. Draft law, a law McCarthy himself had voted for.
0: Clearly, McCarthy was not above contradicting himself in his hunt for communists. Even if he was wrong, he covered his shortcomings by being loud. The press liked the noise, and McCarthy held strong in the media.
1: In the end, nothing came of the Paris probe, but the army wasn't going to wait around for the senator to try again.
0: In February of 1954, Army Secretary Robert T. Stevens declared that Paris's superior was banned from testifying in McCarthy's hearings. He didn't hide his disgust towards McCarthy and Roy Cohn's behavior.
1: The Republican President Ike Eisenhower quietly backed the army. To him, McCarthy was a pimple on the road to progress. After that, every Republican politician had to pick a side. It was either Team Eisenhower or Team McCarthy.
0: Senator McCarthy's explosive behavior wasn't just polarizing Washington, but the entire nation. On March 9th, CBS News anchor Edward R. Murrow attacked the senator on his program, See It Now. Between clips of McCarthy's bullying presence on the subcommittee, Murrow argued that McCarthy couldn't toe the line between investigating and prosecuting. He insinuated the senator was growing more and more delusional in his hunt for communism.
1: It wouldn't be the only televised attack on McCarthy that week. Just four days later, the embattled senator was attacked by his own
0: party. On March 13th, Vice President Richard Nixon gave a televised address that condemned McCarthy's tactics. He said, men who have in the past done effective work exposing communists in this country have by reckless talk and questionable methods made themselves the issue rather than the cause they believe in so deeply.
1: McCarthy wasn't rattled by Nixon. In fact, that same night, he spoke to a small crowd saying, some people have told me I shouldn't go so tough, but I don't care how high or low they are. I don't intend to treat traitors like gentlemen.
0: The public criticisms were the least of McCarthy's worries. The Army had its own damning report on the way, and it would spell serious trouble.
1: Since January of that year, John G. Adams, the general counsel to the U.S. Army, had warned Eisenhower's cabinet about what he called, quote, the Cone Shine Thing meaning Roy Cohn had persistently used his influence as the general counsel to get his friend and former assistant, David Schein, preferential treatment in the Army.
0: There was no shortage of evidence that Schein, who had been drafted into the armed services in November 1953, had Cohn pulling strings for him, even requesting special assignments on his behalf.
1: When Eisenhower received an official report on Cohn's behavior, he had little choice but to move forward with disciplinary action. He approved a plan to remove Cohn from the Senate subcommittee.
0: Problem was, they'd need Senator McCarthy's approval to officially bench Cohn. Everyone hoped that McCarthy understood that if he didn't force Cohn to resign, the Army would release Adams' report which would obliterate both his and Cohn's credibility.
1: The ever-stubborn senator refused. He called the Army's actions blackmail and readied himself for one more fight on Capitol Hill. This time, though, McCarthy's tenacity would have
0: far-reaching consequences. On March 11, 1954, the Army released Adams' report to every member of McCarthy's subcommittee. Naturally, the press soon got a hold of it too.
1: The newspapers, usually favorable to the senator, took a sharp left turn and went to town. They ran the most damning details from the report, including the accusation that McCarthy had worked with Cohn to get preferential
0: treatment for David Shine. The report alleged that not only had Cohn reached out to every branch of the military, he'd even pushed for Shine to receive a promotion and campaigned to get him a lucrative assignment at a nearby base. When some of these requests stalled, Cohn incessantly requested Shine be allowed to leave his basic training.
1: For Cohn's requests that were granted, it was mostly because Army leaders were afraid of him. At one point, Cohn vowed he would wreck the Army.
0: And as for McCarthy himself, The report alleged the senator supported Roy Cohn in all of his efforts.
1: No one was surprised that McCarthy rebuffed these charges. The next day, not only did he accuse the Army of extortion and bribery, he went so far as to release 11 previously unseen memos about the Army's misconduct.
0: Many politicians were dubious of these memos. It was too convenient that the senator had documents confirming the Army had tried to stop his investigations and that he could pull them out at the drop of a hat. Adams called the senator's charges fantastic and false.
1: Even if they were fantastically false, they would still need to be addressed. The Senate Permanent Subcommittee of Investigations immediately met to discuss the Army's charges and McCarthy's countercharges. Eventually, they decided that their own subcommittee should investigate, which was an awkward situation since McCarthy himself was the chairman.
0: After great debate, the consensus was that McCarthy would be forced to step down during the probe, but he was permitted to question witnesses. Despite sitting on the sidelines, McCarthy would still find a way to loom large, both vocally and visually.
1: After all, the hearings would become one of the most visible Senate engagements in U.S. history. NBC, ABC, and DuPont would beam the coverage live to every television in America. And that first week of the hearings, over two-thirds of Americans tuned in to watch. Over 80 million viewers caught at least part of the trial. The hearings were so popular, in fact, that department stores reported a distinct rise in television sales.
0: While Americans weren't necessarily interested in the logistics of the case, they loved watching the spectacle unfold.
1: And audiences would indeed be given a show when the hearing started on April 22nd. Special counsel Joseph Welch would serve as the Army's attorney, and Joseph McCarthy and Roy Cohn would represent themselves.
0: It took but three days for the first major controversy to emerge. The Senate produced a photograph of Army Secretary Stevens and David Shine appearing jovial in front of an airplane. The photo was dated November 17, 1953, when Stevens was supposedly not speaking with Senator McCarthy and Cohn because of their incessant requests regarding Shine. Yet the Army Secretary looked quite chummy next to Shine.
1: Stevens floundered on the stand. He couldn't find a way to argue against the implication.
0: He did look pretty cheery. But Army Counsel Joe Welch came to his rescue. He rose from his chair and countered that the photograph was doctored. The version McCarthy and Cone gave to the Senate had been cropped. Welch then produced the
1: original photo, which included another soldier standing next to Shine. Stevens could have been smiling at either of them.
0: Roy Cohn was brought to the stand to explain himself, but his smug testimony only made matters worse. Welch was more than happy to remind the Senate that McCarthy and his team had been caught doctoring photographs before.
1: More importantly, this was a chance for Welch to move the suspicion from Stevens back to Senator McCarthy. Sure, it was still odd that Stevens had been with Shine, but it was more suspicious that McCarthy had doctored evidence to bring that tiny
0: detail to light. McCarthy reeled from the attack. Later that day, he found an opportunity to jump back into the spotlight. When Welch asked a McCarthy staffer if the photograph had come from a pixie, a common camera model at the time, McCarthy interrupted. Will counsel for my benefit define, I think he might be an expert on that, What a pixie is?
1: Welch didn't fall for the innuendo, which implied that he was a homosexual. Instead, he turned it around on McCarthy with a jab of his own. A pixie is a close relative of a fairy.
0: Welch's retort got laughs from the gallery. The lawyer had gotten the room back on his side. It was these little exchanges that would keep America watching, even as the hearings dragged on for weeks. McCarthy, who normally thrived under the spotlight, was now being bested in personality politics. And he'd soon learn that there is too much of a good thing.
1: Up next, Joe McCarthy faces his reckoning and the judgment of the American people. Now back to the story.
0: Over a week into the Army McCarthy hearings, very few questions had actually been answered. The exhausting proceedings dragged at a snail's pace, partially due to Joe McCarthy's constant interruptions.
1: No one was more exhausted than Army Secretary Stevens. By his ninth day of testimony, he'd spent most of his energy answering questions regarding Senator McCarthy's Fort Monmouth investigation.
0: So when he was dramatically confronted with an FBI memo that McCarthy mysteriously produced from his briefcase, he was exhausted, if not caught off guard.
1: The document was a carbon copy of a letter, allegedly written by FBI head J. Edgar Hoover. Addressed to the Army, it warned of subversives at Fort Monmouth. If the letter was real, McCarthy had hard evidence he was right. Army officials had been ignoring problems at the base.
0: Joseph Welch wasn't so quick to believe McCarthy, however. This was too convenient to be true. He demanded that the letter be verified by Hoover himself.
1: Hoover explained that while the FBI had given similar information to the Army, he had certainly not written the letter in question.
0: McCarthy had been caught red-handed fabricating evidence for the second time in as many weeks. But like before, McCarthy stalled. His explanation was that a young patriot in the armed forces gave him the document.
1: Welch took a different angle. Even if the document is real, it's a crime to release confidential papers. Now, what did McCarthy have to say to that?
0: Nothing, apparently, aside from encouraging other federal employees to break the law. Senator McCarthy tried to backpedal, complimenting all the individuals who had placed their oath to defend the country above any presidential directive. As far as he was concerned, McCarthy said, I would like to notify those two million employees. I feel it is their duty to give us any information they have.
1: Naturally, the president was watching all this unfold. He took his disgust for the witch hunt public the next day, releasing a statement that condemned McCarthy's remarks. He said no one was above the laws of the land.
0: But for all the verbal jabbing and bluffing, it would take almost another three weeks to reach the height of the proceedings. The hearing's most famous moment came on June 9, 1954, Day 30 of Testimony. Joe Welch was questioning Cohn about his delay in telling the army of potential subversives at Monmouth.
1: Again, Senator McCarthy was stewing on the sidelines. He used this as a moment to interject, hoping to bring Welch down a peg. McCarthy lobbed a wild verbal attack on an associate at Welch's law firm, Fred Fisher. He prattled on and on about how Welch's co-worker had once been a member of the National Lawyers Guild, an organization with loose links to the Communist Party.
0: While Fisher had originally been slated to be Welch's assistant at the trial, he had been sent back. Welch had rightfully feared the junior lawyer would be attacked for his past. But McCarthy would stop at nothing, and even without Fisher present, he made that fear a reality.
1: To Welch, and many in the Senate, it seemed ruthless and cruel to drag a young man's name through the mud, one not even involved in the hearings. Welch begged McCarthy to stop.
0: McCarthy would not let the issue go, despite what seemed like the entire room's disapproval. As he descended into another tirade on Fisher, Welch interrupted him, commanding, let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You have done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency?
1: The audience began to applaud. This was the final straw. The senator had effectively dug his own grave.
0: McCarthy, usually not rattled, never quite recovered after that day. According to his colleagues, he was soon overrun with debilitating headaches and began drinking more heavily.
1: Though his final day of testimony on June 10th was more or less uneventful, he certainly didn't say anything that implicated him further. McCarthy's burnout was palpable. As the hearings wound to a close, his public support was careening downwards.
0: McCarthy's approval rating dropped more than 15%, from 50% to 34%. With the immense coverage the hearings received live on TV... Americans were able to see Senator McCarthy's true colors and they were far uglier than many had realized.
1: Between his attack on Fred Fisher, his rude interruptions, and his bullying tactics, the public quickly soured on the senator. Papers in Wisconsin, McCarthy's own state, called his behavior inexcusable and brutal.
0: Senator McCarthy had often depended on mass support to protect him. He frequently said, nobody loves Joe but the people. Now, however, McCarthy had lost his armor. He was vulnerable to criticism like never before.
1: The hearings finally reached their end on June 17, 1954, after 32 witnesses, 72 sessions, and two million words of testimony. It was time for the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations to render its verdict.
0: In a shocking turn, the committee concluded that the Army had indeed made efforts to terminate or influence the investigation into Fort Monmouth, and tried to block subpoenas by personally appealing to members of McCarthy's staff. Most importantly, McCarthy was cleared of wrongdoing. It was determined that the senator had not applied improper pressure on the Army or Shine's behalf. Roy Cohn, however, was found to have made unduly persistent or aggressive efforts on the part of his friend Shine.
1: For McCarthy, though, what should have been vindication came too late. The damage was done. His political career would never recover.
0: And the scorn trickled down to nearly everyone involved with the hearings. Senator McClellan, who served on the subcommittee, said, I think this will be recognized and long remembered as one of the most disgraceful episodes in the history of our government.
1: Indeed, almost everyone who took part in the hearings would soon voluntarily or involuntarily step out of politics. Army Secretary Stevens would return to his family's business. Roy Cohn would be forced out of the subcommittee to become a private lawyer in Manhattan.
0: And Senator McCarthy, of course, was staring down the end of his career.
1: That very same month, Senator Lester Hunt died by suicide. It soon came to light that Hunt had been blackmailed by McCarthy's Republican colleagues, hoping to keep him from re-election. And just a few hours before Hunt took his life, a vague threat from McCarthy was published in the newspapers, he had dirt on Senator Hunt. While Hunt's suicide can't be directly linked to McCarthy's comment, it underscored his long history of dangerous tactics. He had to be
0: stopped. On December 2nd, 1954, the Senate voted 67 to 22 to censure McCarthy. While a censure doesn't carry a formal punishment, it's still the most severe discipline the Senate can mandate besides expulsion. McCarthy was only the sixth senator ever censured in United States history.
1: Publicly scorned, Senator McCarthy had completely lost what little political capital he had left after the hearings.
0: It wasn't long before he was removed from his chairman position and crossed off of Eisenhower's White House guest list. Even the press, once his powerful ally, began ignoring him. As the Red Scare died down, McCarthy found himself out of the job he was best at, fearmongering mongering
1: In May of 1957, McCarthy died at just 48 years old of hepatitis, a condition only worsened by his heavy drinking.
0: In the wake of his untimely death, McCarthy is now remembered as more of a symbol than as a man. In fact, his name has become a catch-all for the communist witch hunts of the 1950s, McCarthyism
1: Though some might argue that the senator was simply an opportunist who took advantage of Americans' fears, those close to him claim that he truly believed in his cause. Regardless, his cause may have been the wrong one. McCarthy did not uncover one single communist throughout his entire career.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with number four on our countdown, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson when the 17th President of the United States was forced to defend himself against accusations of high crimes and misdemeanors.
1: You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time.
1: Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.
0: And Parcasters, be sure to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. It's a fun twist on a classic setup where hopeful singles choose their match based on personality, not looks. That is, until the very end. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.